Every once in a while, a book comes along that really gives one pause. It makes us question our assumptions and gives our worldview a serious head shake. Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World is one of those books. And I'm delighted to be speaking with its author, Anand Jiradaradas, in today's podcast. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Sea Change Magazine. Now that we're talking about books, I hope you've had a chance to check out my recently published book, also titled In the Business of Change, profiling social entrepreneurs around the world and their lessons learned. Check it out at your local bookstore, at Amazon, or on our website. As mentioned, on today's special episode, we speak with the author of Winners Take All, who offers a fascinating look at what he refers to as market world. Power elites who are focused on changing the world in market-friendly ways with win-win and doing well by doing good their mantras. Problem is, despite good intentions, the author argues that market world are only interested in social change that preserves the power and balance their social order, and their roles in it. Their approach is often exclusionary too, with the very people they're trying to help often left out of the social change conversation. In a nutshell, Winners Take All is a timely wake-up call, revealing what can happen when social change is deferred to an elite few, while also offering up alternatives on how we can do better. I am particularly fascinated by the fact that even in the acknowledgments in the in the back of the book, you mentioned that in many ways you are uh, kind of part of this uh, market world elite. I don't know if you'll really put it in that in those terms, you yourself personally, but you grew up and you you had a lot of experience in this world. Um, and so you're taking on some people who <laughs> might be part of that world that you, uh, you know, that you're, your colleagues and, and, um, but you're doing so in a, in a very honest and, and open manner. And I think that's, that's very respectful. I'm wondering why you decided to write the book now though, like what specific, uh, you know, how, what, what about now? What about the situation that we're in currently that give you the impetus, uh, that inspired you to write this book? Well, um, I didn't, I didn't decide to write the book now, you know, I, I, I decided to write it three years ago. That's true. Yes. And that suggests one of the, the challenges, um, of books, which is that you begin them in a moment based on what the world looks like in that moment and based on how you see things in that moment and based on, um, your understanding of where things might go. And then the world turns and sometimes it, just goes in a different place. Sometimes it undoes your, you know, prognostications or expectations. Um, and sometimes the things that you're writing about gather and worsen and, and kind of coagulate as problems. And I think I got, you know, I got lucky on this one while the world didn't. Um, because as I was writing and thinking and reporting over these last three years about the pretensions and the fraudulence of um, plutocrats changing the world, um, the United States of America, thanks in large part to the untended wounds left by um, 
a generation of of self-interested plutocrats, elected as president a phony plutocrat with phony ambitions to to make change for the least among us, um, who promptly set about using his office to enrich himself. And so the thesis of the book um, only came more and more to life as I was as I was writing it, and whenever I would feel doubt, um, there would be you know yet more evidence along the way to kind of perk me up and and make me feel like, look, the conversation that I'm trying to make us have, which is how did we come to believe that people with money are especially bright and compassionate and capable of saving us? Um, I I just got daily doses of reassurance from the tsunami of vulgarity that was washing over us. Yeah, I can can, uh, totally understand that. You know, obviously, as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking of the rise in populism and nationalism and how there might have been this, um, you know, one might have the the, the rise in the market world uh, that you refer to, these elites, these change-making elites, and how they tended to sometimes be in a bit of their a bit of their own bubble, how that could have potentially given rise to a lot of anger and resentment among others who don't feel that they're taken they're, they're part of these conversations of change making so so to speak conversations they're left out um, and that might have um, spurred this uh, rise in, in in Trump in populism curious what you would say about that look I think the philanthrocapitalist class enabled the rise of Donald Trump in two distinct ways um, they created an opening for him and they laid tracks for him to ride into that opening. Um, the opening they created was all the problems they pretended to be addressing but didn't. Um, as as the rich and powerful have kind of taken over social change in recent years, they have tried to redefine change in ways that don't hurt them. And they've tried to... Um, promote the kinds of changes that leave them on top and leave in place the systems and structures that continually generate the very problems they claim to be solving. Mm -hmm. And so fundamental things like declining social mobility in America, an education system that was not educating most of our children properly, um, the the kind of very patchwork progress that women have made in, in terms of being able to work and play their many other roles, all of these things festered as problems trade uh, you know i mean so many things just the fact that globalization wasn't actually working for everybody the way it was being rich explained to us that it was all of those things festered and when problems fester and elites are telling you they're solving them and telling you that things are going to get better and 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 that the kind of silicon valley disruption economy is going to turn everyone into a micro entrepreneur and that's going to work or rich people are going to give back and that's going to work or you know People start to lose trust in elites and in institutions. And when, frankly, those institutions were very cozy with the political class on the left and the right, so that an institution like Goldman Sachs sends large numbers of senior executives into both Democratic and Republican administrations, um, people start to lose, lose faith and lose trust and, be, and, and, and start to fill, in some cases, with a desire to just screw with the system instead of vote for someone they love. And, and, and that desire to poke the bear in the eye um, is, is very much what 
created space, created that opening for Trump. But the second way in which the philanthrocapitalist class abetted him um, is laying the tracks that allowed him to ride into that opening that they created. And they they supplied him with a lot of the the kind of playbook that he has since learned. Um, and, and the playbook is really there's a kind of a few different moves in the playbook that, that you will all recognize from both Donald Trump and, um, frankly, many of the uh, philanthropic capitalists who preceded him, which is um, one that the very people who caused the winners take all economy to, to come to be are the people who can best save us from it. Um, the idea of the win win that that you can kind of fight for the least among us while seeking to enrich yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of you know, the people who, who cause the problems are best qualified to solve them. I've manufactured ties in Mexico and China, whatever. So, you know, I'm the guy who can get us the best trade deals. Well, that, again, is a big philanthrocapitalist move. The people who work at Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and built the winners-take-all economy are best qualified um, to solve it. Um, you know, the, the, the very notion that there is no tension between self-enrichment and solving social problems. That again is at the, the heart of the philanthropic capitalist pretense. And Donald Trump rode right, rode that idea right into the White House. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I actually really took note of uh, in the book when you talk about some of the conferences and thought leaders that um, continue to promote similar ideas. And uh, even though they talk about social change, it's a lot of the same people that are not necessarily trying to undermine the status quo as it is, but to really help, um, you know, capitalize on what they are already doing and their, the systems that are already in place. And, you know, I, I was at uh, Clinton Global Initiative one year. I was at school. I mean, there's some wonderful people doing some great work for sure, but I, I did definitely get a bit cynical. No one was, was sort of t- uh, challenging each other, uh, and you mentioned that as well. Um, and in terms of thought leaders, you also talk about um, the types of ways that you – what you need to have in order to be a thought leader today and how a lot of people who might be challenging that status quo in those, that situation are not considered thought leaders with the same amount of prominence uh, and, and ability to get their voice out there. So I'm just wondering, with all that in mind and what you just mentioned before, do you see that ever changing? The clinical and global initiative is no longer there. Do you think people um, – We'll learn from that of maybe of doing something a little bit different. Well, the Clinton Global Initiative is there is not there anymore because they thought Hillary was going to win and she'd mm-hmm. be president. It'd be unseemly to have this conference going True. on. True. Yes. It's been replaced by the Bloomberg Global Business Forum and and dozens of other private sector world changing events that have barnacled themselves onto UN Week every September. So I think that trend is ongoing. Yeah. I do think there is a reckoning happening, and I I have been on the road for you know, nearly, nearly two months talking to people about winners take all and talking to them about their own places in these systems that continue to hoard opportunity for the very few while explaining to the many that they're, that they're doing their best to serve them. And the reality is that many, many people in these spaces know that they're standing on indefensible mountains, know that there is something very badly wrong, know that they are part of citadels that are deluded about their relationship to the well-being of of the world beyond them. And I think whether it's employees at Facebook or people who work in the philanthropic space or 
people who work in on Wall Street or people who um, have nonprofits. There are a great many people who are involved in this kind of ecosystem of elite-led change-making that understand deeply that if we don't shift from an age dominated by market fundamentalism and private um, salvation to an age defined by reform, the pursuit of public-spirited change, universal change at the root, at the level of systems and structures, um, we're going to have a bleak period ahead because the next time we may get a Donald Trump, we may get a Donald Trump who can read. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yes. Uh, good point. You you do, talking about some people that might actually start making a bit of a difference in this narrative, um, you, you talk about Darren Walker from the Ford Foundation, Andrew Kasoy from the B Corp. And how, you know, Darren was talking about focusing more on addressing inequality, which is a conversation most people um, in the market world, as you state, are not really into. And someone like Andrew, who talks about making bad harder and, and the trade-offs involved in in, uh, in the work. And I, I, I'm curious where they're standing now, because I don't know, you kind of, you know, I don't know, did they actually take the next steps and, and start... Um, changing a bit of how they approach social change, or are they pretty much still deliberating over that, in your opinion? I mean, you'd have to talk to them, but I, but I, but I, I can tell you this. Look, I, you know, I think B Corps is a, is a fascinating and important movement that has yes. tried to create a safe harbor for businesses that want to be better and didn't necessarily have the legal protection to put shareholder value um, in a constellation with other values that they that they wish to pursue. So so I think it's a great movement they've created. The limitation of it that I talk about in the book is it's a voluntary safe harbor where companies perhaps already inclined to be good can kind of go be good, but it's not compelling the worst actors among us to be bad. And the reality is, you know, an enormous fraction of the pollution in the world comes from a very small handful of companies. And if, you know, you can actually do a lot with, if, if, if you compel businesses to to be different and I you know my concern was how far are you going to get simply inviting um, the already good into a club of the already good but they're thinking about these issues and there was an important moment a couple months ago perhaps when Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts introduced a proposal that would essentially require every company in America to become a B Corp over a certain size essentially require it to become a benefit corporation that factored in the needs of stakeholders. You know, that's a proposal with very little chance of a passage in the immediate term. However, it, it was a very important direction that raised this question that I think probably most Americans aren't aware of, which is that we, the society, give companies charters. Okay? The company is not just the you know thing that buys for one price and sells for a higher price. Companies are legal structures that we grant them as a society with the limit their liability above all. And that's a fiction that we invented, that we dole out, and we don't get a lot of great leverage out of it. And we should actually maybe drive a harder bargain. If you want, you know, the society to extend you the protection of limited liability uh, as a corporation, all the other benefits of a corporation, you now have a constitutionally protected right to speak as a corporation and give money and do all these things. Well, that's fine. But here's what we want in exchange. Here's the tax rate we want. Um, here's the kind of stakeholder um, relationships we want. Here's the relationship to the environment we want. And if not, you're free to operate without a corporate charter. 
Yeah. What about um, Darren? I guess I would have to ask him where he's at in terms of. And I, by the way, I agree with you. The B Corp is a, is a wonderful tool that a lot of people are using. Just I, I feel like there's more that could be done and conversations that could be had. I, I think the, the reality is America's problem is not that we don't have, you know, enough Etsy's. It's that we have too many Exxon's. And, you know, even if we use the B Corp movement to get a thousand Etsy's instead of one, although it's not one anymore, um, I don't think that would change America as much as reining in the thousand worst offenders. And you're only going to be able to rein in the thousand worst offenders through the law and through compulsory regulation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good point. I just uh, had another question for you in terms of um, where you see this this the movement going as someone who you know I write a lot about social enterprise social entrepreneurship the power of of business to affect change I mean it really did give me some pause um, your book that is in terms of an argument that is put forth uh, especially especially at the end of the book about how the 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 public action and, and um, the demo- democratic institutions, um, in that opinion, should be the ones that are affecting social change rather than the market. That, that focus on one over the other could be problematic. And the argument is that the real social change should happen from those democratic institutions and the government and laws and politics. And, and could you express that a bit more and how you see Will that happen? Do you see that happening more? Or are people still looking for a change in the the market and entrepreneurs and in these big market world uh, change makers? Well, I think there's a great contest underway. I think the 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 people who continue to believe that business is how you change the world and that business people acting as philanthropists is how you change the world and Silicon Valley disruption and apps are how you change the world and social enterprises that profit from um, social problems, you know, while alleviating them instead of solving them are how you change the world. Those people march on, but I'm deeply aware as I encounter them along the book tour trail that many of them are having crises of conscience and many of them have known for some years that they may not be the saviors they think they are and many are rethinking. Meanwhile, there's another theory of changing the world, the old theory of changing the world, that you do it democratically, that you solve things by improving the conditions of political life, that you solve things through citizenship, through movements, through law, and you don't use whatever temporary state of power there may be to as an excuse for not participating. I mean, the civil rights movement, um, you know, existed um, as a, as a striving and has continued to under Republicans and Democrats. You don't civil rights movement has not stepped out uh, during the Republican administrations. Um, you work at every level of the society, federal, state and local. You work in civil society. You work in the culture. You work in the law to solve things at the root for everybody. I mean, if you look at all these women running for office across this country, awakening to their their own duties of citizenship and finding their voices. If you look at all the people who never took much of an interest in politics, who now know all these bill numbers in the Senate and House and who are motivated and 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 determined to you know call their congressman, call their senator, make their voice heard. Um, there is something happening in this country. Mm-hmm. And I think it is very possible that this, you know, this this kind of small minded 
feeble, uh, phony billionaire will, in the long view of history, um, end up being the last gasp of a dying regime of capital supremacy that venerated billionaires and their powers to save us. And, and, and he would have discredited um, those pretensions faster than anyone else in history could. And that we might actually move after he is gone towards an age of reform. So you say there's hope then? <laughs> I, I do think there's hope. Okay. The Donald Trump presidency is that night in an alcoholic's life that sometimes with, with luck and perseverance um, puts them on a path to, to, to getting sober and waking up. Perfect. Perfect. I think that's, I, that's the best way to end that. Um, I appreciate it so, so much. I really do thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Again, that's... I loved your book. Um, I really did. I think everyone should read it. Well, good. Well, thank you for helping to bring it to the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, take care and thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and changemakers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa Beardbaugh.